and godly wisdom. We see which one produces good results. And we come to the conclusion that God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. So first, verses 18 to 21, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Okay, verse 18, two views of the same event. Human wisdom looks at the cross and says, I don't get it. I I don't get it. What connection is there between somebody dying on a cross 2,000 years ago in Israel and me today in Washington State? What possible connection could there be between these two things? Everybody dies. A lot of people have died nobly or heroically. What is it about this one that makes a difference? I've, I've heard, I have heard two intellectual arguments against the cross. When I say intellectual, I mean people who, who try to approach it from you know, the scholarly approach. Uh, there, and when I say two, there, there are lots of attacks, uh, of in, intellectual attacks against Christianity but I'm thinking of specifically against the cross itself. Uh, they are, and they are that it, it uh, is silly for one person's death to pay for another, to think one person's death to pay for another, and second, that it is immoral for God to sacrifice uh, Christ on a cross for us. Okay, so the first, it, I agree, it could sound silly for one person's death to pay for another person's sins. For instance, if you think my death could pay for your sins, <laughs> it's like, how could that happen? It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense that my death could pay for your sins. My death can't even pay for my sins. How could it possibly pay for your sins? And we go, it's, it's an absurd thing. It doesn't make sense. But let me tell you something else that, that, that's silly. It's silly to think that a piece of paper in my pocket can buy groceries. Right? This is a piece of paper. It's not, it's, I, I thought about ripping it, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> It's, it's my piece of paper with a five on it. <laughs> uh, why, why could a piece of paper, and once upon a time, once upon a time, that piece of paper was backed by gold, right? We had the gold standard, and that piece of paper was backed by gold. But back in the days of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the United States abandoned that gold policy so that that paper was no more uh, backed by gold. It was somehow theoretically tied to it, and the government arbitrarily froze the price of gold. You ready for this? At $35 an ounce. (laughs) If wise people would have bought gold at that time, but actually, 71 was the time when you really wanted to buy gold. Because at the, at, in 1971, gold was still at that government set price of $35 an ounce. But then they removed that altogether. And so from that point on, there was no correlation between this piece of paper and, and, and the value uh, that it supposedly has, aside from our willingness to accept in business dealings that it's got value. It has nothing behind it to support it but our willingness to accept it as having value. Now, people who think that makes sense think Christ's death is foolish. <laughs> and you start going, wait a minute. This is, and we start realizing if you can't accept that, then why should you be willing to accept money? But the fact is, everybody does. And we buy groceries with pieces of paper. And the funny thing is, if you have a bigger number on that piece of paper, it buys more groceries. <laughs> it's the same piece of paper. It just has a, I don't go try putting different numbers on your paper. It's not going to make a difference. But, but uh, the same people who think, 
paper can buy groceries say Jesus' death can't pay for sin. And, and there is a powerful argument for the purchasing power of God, uh, or for the purchasing power of Christ's blood. First, just if the government can say that paper has value, cannot God say that blood has value? You go, well, yeah, he has a right to simply say it, and his simply saying it is enough to make it true. But there's more than that, because just as paper was once backed by gold, blood is backed by life, right? The blood represents life, and life has value. It has real value. Gold, the value of gold is established by rarity, excuse me, scarcity, by, by uh, beauty, beauty, and by its utility value. Gold can be used for a lot of things, versus many of us have it in our mouths, right, for, for helping our, our teeth stay together or function. Uh, you know, gold has utility value, gold has beauty, and gold has, has uh, this value because it's scarce. It has real things that make it valuable. Well, life has valuable be value because it's life, and the blood represents life, and the blood is backed by life, and Jesus' life had the value to buy our lives. And, and, and it makes tremendous sense. And there is a strong argument. But the intellectual argument says, no, it makes no sense that one person's death could pay for another one's life. Well, why, why would that make sense? Because they reject God from the get-go. We're going to find in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the, the, godly, or the natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually revealed. He cannot understand them. Right? They don't make sense because he re rejects it from the get-go. And we start out with the Word of God as our authority because it's supported by God, and we don't have any problem accepting it. We accept it as our standard of understanding what God wants to say to us, and they do not. So it will never make sense to them. And these things I'm saying to you that I think chances are most of you are going, yeah, I like that. That makes sense. That's a good way of understanding it. I, it, it, it makes sense to me now. They will, it will not make sense to them because they will disagree with every principle po pointing towards it as you go. And if you don't start with the starting basis of the argument, you'll never reach the same conclusion. So, so that is the argument about uh, the, the blood that one man sacrificed, not just anybody's sacrifice. Jesus was the lamb without spot, unblemished, sinless, perfect. His blood was pure and valuable. Plus, he was the son of God, which gives greater value. So there was, there, it does make sense that his blood could pay for our sins. But the, in the eyes of, of the intellectual, the, the, the scholarly approach to, to our world says, no, it doesn't make sense. Uh, another one is the, the, that it's immoral for God to sacrifice his son. Well, only if the son is unwilling, right? We honor people who go to war for us who go to value, thank you for your service. You've heard that phrase, you've said that phrase. Why? Because they go and they risk their lives for us and we say that's noble. So if a king sends his son, the prince, out to battle, that is noble. It's not immoral. Unless the son is, is afraid and saying, please, dad, no, no. <laughs> then, then it might not be moral for the king to boot his son out the door, you know, and say, don't come back till you're bloody or something like that. But, but then the son goes out to battle and he dies. Right? We may say, what a shame. We may say, what a tragic loss. But we don't say it was immoral. We say it was noble. It was heroic. It is beyond moral. It is, there's, if Jesus didn't want to come for us, if Jesus didn't want to die on that, I shouldn't say he wanted to, he asked not to, but he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, if there is no other way, because he wanted to save us, and if, if it would save us, he was willing to do even that, and he did. If there was another way, he would have taken it, but there wasn't. 
But he willingly did this. He came for this purpose. He nobly died for us. It was incredibly moral. It was beyond moral. But wisdom, human wisdom looks at the cross and says it's folly because they cannot accept those things. But godly wisdom says it is, and it does, and it works. And what we find is there's this huge contrast between earthly wisdom and godly wisdom. So we come back to the passage. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the cross is where salvation is. Godly wisdom says it is the power of God to salvation. For for the saved, it doesn't need to be argued or reasoned. It is self-evident. It's just like nobody... Before I was saved, I had all sorts of skepticism and doubts about, the, about Christianity. It didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand it. I thought these people are all blindly, you know, following whatever deception they're fed. I became saved, and the same things that I thought were, were silliness became self-evident to me. I mean, it's not like I automatically understood all of Scripture, but when Scripture is explained, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, it just makes sense. Uh, to the saved, it makes sense. When you learn something from experience, you can study and learn more about it. You can continue learning more about Christianity, but you understand it by experience. You don't need it proven to you. It just simply is. You understand it. You've experienced it. And the cross is to us the power of God to salvation. And when I say the cross, I'm talking about the blood. I'm talking about the death. I'm talking about the, the Lord's Supper, what it represents, the body and blood of Christ given for us. Okay, Uh, verses 19 to 21, we have the emptiness of human wisdom. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Their wisdom will come from nothing. This little verse, uh, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. If you're looking at your Bible, it's set aside as a special way. It's a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from the book of Isaiah. It's kind of interesting if you you read. Sometimes it's really valuable to go back and read those quotes in context and see what they're saying and, and, and what's around it. In Isaiah chapter 29, I'm going to start at verse 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. So he's establishing a reason. Because their hearts are far from me. They act like they know me. They claim me. They use my name. I'm on their lips. But their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore... You know, because they're like that, therefore I will come again, do wonderful things for this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Because they reject me, because they do not come to me, because they are hypocrites, I will, show, I will re, uh, make their wisdom foolish uh, because of those things. Uh, and what we have is a world that has rejected Christ, and because they've rejected Christ, of course Christ doesn't make sense to them. He can't, because if he makes sense to them, they have to accept him. And they don't want to do that. They can't get there from where they are. They earned their useless wisdom. They, they, they demanded useless wisdom. And their false wisdom is a consequence of rejecting God. And since they have rejected God, their wisdom does not have a valid basis and will never arrive at the truth. It's Proverbs 9.10 that says, For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
Proverbs 1, I forget which verse it is, I think it's 12 or something like that, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't start with God, you cannot reach true wisdom. You can reach wise-sounding conclusions. You can even come up with a lot of truths in the process, but you cannot reach godly wisdom because you have started from the wrong basis. These self-proclaimed wise people do not find themselves in the church. Why does it say, where is the, the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? He's not just making fun of us, although it kind of sounds like he is. <laughs> hey, okay, where's the wise one? Dave, you started to raise your hand. Put it down. <laughs> he's, he's shaking his head. No, nope, not me. Uh, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Where are they? And what's he saying? He says, they're not here among us. And I, you can say, well, wait a minute. I don't think I'm that stupid. No, you know what? Here's the thing is, is wise people get saved. The intelligent people get saved. The, the debaters, the scholars, they get saved. But once they come in, they abandon those positions they had before. Because they have now got a true wisdom. They've got a true basis of wisdom, a true knowledge and understanding. And, 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 they, and, of course, we grow into those things. But he says those people aren't found here. doesn't mean why a wise man can't get here. But once he is, the, world, the things of worldly wisdom that he once embraced, he now comes to set aside. He doesn't, he doesn't need them anymore. He doesn't hang on to them anymore. The wise are not here. They don't find themselves in the church. Their wisdom is too foolish to accept the truth of God. It's not wise enough. They need to reject their wisdom to accept the truth Those, because they're incompatible. If they come to Christ, they will cease to be what they were. Uh, it, it, it's, it's part of the... the nature of godly wisdom versus manly wisdom. The wise of the world will still not be found here. The wise of the world can come here, but once they come to Christ, they will reject that worldly wisdom, which doesn't mean we don't find people in the world, in the church, who are buying into the wisdom of the world, which is why this book is so important. Because we, here's the deal, is we can easily be pushed to accept the wisdom of the world. We can easily be pushed to accept it, and we feel the pressure, and sometimes we crumble. Sometimes we yield ground that we should not yield. And sometimes we accept arguments that we should not accept. And the whole point of why this is written is because Corinth, the church of Corinth, was having struggles of wanting to look wise. The church in Corinth wanted to look wise. It's, we all, nobody likes to look stupid. Nobody likes to look foolish. In the world, we will look foolish for holding on to Christian truths. That is a given. That will not change, right? That will not change. It is a given. It is the way it is. What we need to be able to do is say, I'll take it. I will accept looking foolish in the eyes of the world that I will hold on to the wisdom of God. And it is we hold on to the wisdom of God in the world that we have a chance to make an impact on the world. Because some people out there will see and respond and turn to Christ. They will recognize the emptiness of what they have. The wisest man in the world, what was his conclusion? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Or depending on your translation, it might say folly, folly, all is folly. World, this world is meaningless. And by the way, when you think about that, what does the wisdom of the world have to offer in exchange for the cross? See, the wisdom of the world attacks Christianity and attacks the cross and attacks God, but it cannot offer anything of value in its place. Eat, drink, and, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the best conclusion you can have if you're going to accept the wisdom of this world is live for this world right now because that's all we have. And there's not, that's a really poor 
substitute for eternal life and, and riches and glory. Uh, they have nothing else to offer. Human wisdom and godly wisdom are incompatible. Godly wisdom is the one that saves, that actually offers something. Godly wisdom asks, acts, leads to salvation. Verses 22 to 24. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. We find, uh, find that godly wisdom leads to salvation. The Jews seek for signs. You know, Jewish history, Israelite history, is full of signs. It's full of wonders, right? Moses in the wilderness, right? Moses, in fact, before, before Moses in the wilderness, Moses and Pharaoh with the, the ten plagues. Each one of them a, 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 a trouncing of one of the gods of Egypt. You know, not just a miracle, but a sign uh, to these people. Uh, the Red Sea, a sign. The, the manna in the wilderness, a sign. Moses, the, the history of Israel is full of miracles and, and symbols. And they, would, they came to Jesus and they say, what sign do you give us that we can believe in you? Well, what, you know, the funny thing about when they asked Jesus, what sign do, they, do you give us? Was the day after he fed 5,000 people in the wilderness? And it was those people who came and asked him, what sign do you give us? And what they wanted, it tells you right in the passages, they wanted more bread. They wanted him to do it again. They weren't asking for a sign so that they could believe. They were asking for a sign so they could have bread. And where they should have been believing, they weren't in spite of the sign. They demand signs, and then they don't accept the signs. And so he becomes a stumbling block for them. The answer is not in the signs. He gave them signs they still not, did not believe. Signs do not save anybody. Salvation is not in signs. If I could right now call down fire from heaven and Sorry, right side of the congregation, you're gone. <laughs> this side says, oh, I believe. Well, they say they believe, they want fire, but that sign doesn't save anybody. Jesus saves people. And by the way, I'd, I wouldn't take you guys, I'd take them. So. <laughs> I'm just leaving the front, the middle alone, because Joan feeds me. <laughs> yeah. um, signs. <laughs> Signs do not save. Greeks seek wisdom, right? The Greeks were not impressed by signs. They wanted understanding. A sign doesn't come with, a, with an interpretation. I mean, it, godly signs came with, when God came with a sign, it always had a godly interpretation. But, but to those who don't want to accept it, it doesn't mean anything. You see the sign, you go, I don't know what that means, right? I, I don't know why that happened. It was an interesting natural phenomenon or unnatural, mysterious phenomenon. We don't know, but, it was, but I don't know what it means. We look at things, all sorts of things happen in the world that we kind of go, why did that happen? I don't know. Things like that just happen. As far as we're able to understand, we, we don't always have an understanding. So the Greeks didn't want signs. They wanted wisdom. And they, they loved nothing better than to get together and discuss philosophy and wisdom and, and compare these things. They were always seeking truth. But if you're seeking truth starts with a denial of God, you will never arrive at the truth. Seeking truth has to start with the possibility of God because God, guess what, may be true. And we're here sitting in the conviction and confidence that God is true. Therefore, godly wisdom starts with that. Or true wisdom starts with the acknowledgement of God. But if you start by ruling out God, you will never arrive at wisdom. And that's where our world that denies God but seeks truth is. That's where their world that denied God but sought truth was. It hasn't changed. They were always seeking truth but not finding it. And, and all the wisdom of the world without God does not save. 
In fact, it does not do anything for you, except you can brag because you sound so intelligent. And if you've ever actually read philosophers, it hurts my head. I cannot follow their thinking. I mean, forget their vocabulary. You know, with words this long that you go, what does that mean? And and, 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 uh, I I had a class. (laughs) I I went went out of that class uh, dizzy every day. My mind trying to wrap around it. I mean, I physically felt dizzy. My mind could not wrap around these things. And, And we find godly wisdom is just simple. It's straightforward. It makes sense. Uh, those guys are intelligent, but, but without God, they're not right. So what difference does that make? It's an interesting point to, to, to consider that godly wisdom, or earthly wisdom without God does not, it, t- t- take it, does not save. It, it takes away God and makes the cross pointless, but pla- replaces them with nothing. It only takes, it doesn't give. It has nothing to offer. But we preach Christ crucified. And that is where value is. The same cross that trips that the Jews trip over. You know, the Jews, they wanted him to, to save himself. Hey, if you're the Christ, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Right? He saved others. He cannot save himself. Doctor, heal thyself. Uh, they, they, they said if he did that, then we'd believe. That's not the sign he was giving. He was dying for our sins. Uh, And it is a stumbling block for the Jews. The same cross that Jews trip over and that the Gentiles mock is the cross that would save them. And we do not change the message because they think it's foolish. The power of salvation is in that message. And those who are called will hear the call and will be saved because of the message of the cross, because of the message of the blood, because of the message of Christ's death on our behalf. This section in our handbook, or not handbook, our hymn book, right? Uh, I, I made sure that there were some of these up here. Starts at number 190. All right, I'm going it, to, it's not real long. I think it's about seven hymns long, starting at 190. One, hymn 190, Are You Washed in the Blood? Hymn 191, there is power in the blood. 192, the blood will never lose its power. 193, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. 194, I know a fount. 195, nothing but the blood. 196, there is a fountain. Well, there wasn't any blood in that one. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. I was once advised not to sing those songs. There's a church we shouldn't sing those songs because the picture, the imagery is so gross and offensive. And if a visitor was to come into the church, they might be offended and driven away, and we would never reach them with Christ. Now, that's interesting advice. Okay? So do we do away with proclaiming the blood of Christ so that we don't offend people? (laughs) Kind of counterproductive, because that is where people are saved. Now, the imagery is gross, I admit it. I know I see a fountain filled with blood. That, you know, I'm going to stay away from that fountain in physical, true life. But we are washed in the blood. Have you been to Jesus for his cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Because that's where you are cleansed. That's where you are forgiven. It is the blood of Christ that, that saves us. right? Uh, it, is, it is the blood of Christ. It's gross, it is offensive, but the power of God for salvation is in Christ crucified, and that is our message. That is our message. So we get to uh, verse 25. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, that's verse 24, both, uh, the power of God and the wisdom of salvation, uh, salvation to those same people is still the blood of Christ. Salvation to those same people who reject that, the same people. Uh, you know what? I already shared. I was once a mocker. I once thought Christians were dumb. I thought the whole message was foolishness. Guess what saved me? The message of the cross, right? Jesus, de Jesus died for me. I needed a savior, right? Uh, Jesus, the very, the very mocker, the very one who's stumbling over it still needs to hear it because we, they, he will, he, if, he's, if he's going to be saved, it is because of those things, because of that thing, because of what Jesus did for us. And so we have the foolishness of God, verse 25, is wiser than the wisdom of men. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I want to start out with this. The foolishness of God is an oxymoron. <laughs> foolishness of God, it, it cannot, there is no foolishness of God. He's, make, he's using this as a statement. God at his most foolish is wise. Wiser than man at his best. God at, at his weakest is strong. Stronger than the strength of men. Right? If God had foolishness, his foolishness would be wiser than man can be. If God had weakness, his weakness would be stronger than man can be. Uh, it's a statement to make a point. God is always wise. God is always strong. Never be swayed from God's wisdom to your own. Never be swayed from God's wisdom to man's wisdom. And the thing is, is man has the ability to mock you. Man has the ability to scorn you. And when you are in the situation where, where you are talking to the intelligent person who has all the intelligent-sounding arguments, and that person is in a position of power or in a position of number because there are more than one, and you are made to feel foolish for the sake of the cross, take it. Take it. Yeah. Uh, because because I, I, I'll admit there are times when you feel, can feel foolish. Unless you are, are a better person than, than me, uh, because there are times when I can feel foolish <laughs> in, in, the, in the presence of these people who are so intelligent and have their arguments put together so well, and they sound so right, or they've got the, the, the advantage of numbers in that situation, and I can feel foolish in their midst. I don't know how to answer them. I don't know how to talk. I don't know how to present my position in a way that works, but the answer is don't yield ground. <laughs> Don't yield ground. Hold your ground. Well, you know what? I'm sorry this sounds foolish to you, but I still believe. I'm sorry this sounds foolish to you, but I still am trusting Jesus Christ as my Savior. I know his sacrifice on the cross gave me eternal life. And it's not being wise that, that saves you. It's not being intelligent. It's not, not uh, being wise. You're being wise that will save them at least not in the human sense. It's not your being above reproach and being able to answer everything. Your faithfulness may make a tremendous difference. Never be swayed from God's wisdom to your own. There, there will be times when God's wisdom looks foolish, even to you as you hold tight to it, as you seek to. Uh, and you will feel, or you'll feel foolish for clinging to it. That's okay. That's okay. It, it, that's, that's why this is written. This isn't written in a theoretical sense. This is written in a practical sense. The people in Corinth were being made to feel foolish, and they wanted to look wise. They didn't want to look foolish. They didn't want to look stupid. They didn't want to look, look uh, like they'd made a mistake. And they were being made to feel that way. 
But he says, that's why he wrote this. He says, don't be deceived by this earthly wisdom, this human wisdom. The wisdom of the world can look powerful. It can look intimidating. It can look wise. Be willing to, to look foolish. As you cling to God's wisdom, that's when God's power can be unleashed through you. Okay? Cling to God's wisdom and not your own. Let's, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this word. And Father, I, I admit... I have a desire to look wise. I want to look intelligent. I don't like to look bad or small or foolish. Lord God, I yield how I look <laughs> or how I am presented, how I, how I look to the world and what they think of me. To, I yield that to being faithful to you. I ask for each one of us to hold true to you. In Jesus' name, amen.